We're ready to go through 1 Thessalonians 4 and talk about the rapture of the church. All right? Now let me give you a little forewarning that we're going to be, I'm going to go straight into 2 Thessalonians. One leads to the other. And so you ought to read ahead. We're going to finish, I believe we'll finish chapter 5 next week. Then we're done with 1 Thessalonians. Uh, but 2 Thessalonians goes, is, is, it, one follows the other. And I would encourage you to read ahead because 2 Thessalonians is so incredible, so powerful. Um, it's going to talk about the Antichrist. It's going to talk about a lot of things that are on the prophetic timetable for us today. And so read ahead. It's very brief. A uh, few chapters and you're done with it. And uh, meditate on it. Think about it because the Word of God is good. Amen? All right. Let's go ahead and get started on our manifest purpose and our magnificent prospect. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now that you've got a word for us tonight out of your word. Thank you that, Lord, you sent your word and healed them. Thank you, Lord, that your word is the manna for today. And when we eat of your word and, and Lord, meditate on your word, you give us good success in everything we put our hand to. And with your word, Lord, we are kept from the enemy and we are kept sanctified and strong in this present evil and wicked world. So give us your word tonight, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you say with me, the word is good. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let's talk about 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to finish it up tonight. Now, last time we explored Paul's command. Per the Holy Spirit that we as God's children would walk in what? Purity. Can everybody say with me, purity? Purity Purity is a good thing. The joy of the Lord springs up in the presence of purity. Okay? Now, this time we're going to direct our attention first towards temperamental things. He's going to deal with some temperamental things. That is, look at the verse and read it with me. Chapter 4, verse 11. We're picking up in the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read this brief verse with me, good and loud, and that you study to be quiet. Do you know the Word of God just told us to be quiet? That you study to be quiet. All right, we all know people who are what we would call temperamental. Anybody know anybody in here? Not in here, but anybody temperamental. Okay? Uh, with the emphasis on temperamental, <laughs> okay? They are hard to live with and they're difficult to get along with if you're, if you're living with or you know somebody that's temperamental. And uh, so Paul is going to address this. I- I'm amazed at how often the Bible gets so practical and really messes with our stuff in a good way. Just gets right now to where we live. You cannot escape the probing eyes of the Word of God. And so let's talk about temperamental people because the Word of God is. Temperamental people are touchy, stubborn, rude, opinionated, pushy, or they get angry easily. The Lord was never like that. I love studying the life of Jesus because Jesus was always calm, always collected, always at peace, always in control, never out of control always in charge of his emotions. He never flew off the handle. And Paul says, neither should we. 
We should not be temperamental people. I believe the longer you walk with God and you take on the likeness of Jesus, the less temperamental you will be. You kind of get a steady eddy temperament. And you learn to trust God in all things. You learn to say, I know he's in control, though it doesn't look like it. I'm not going to be shaken by this storm. I'm not going to be moved by this valley. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to let circumstances ruin my day. I'm just steady Eddie. I'm just steady in the Lord. And that's the way I'm going to live. And that's the way Jesus was. And that's certainly the way Paul was. So we are to study. Notice that word. A lot of us don't like that word. But we're to study to be quiet. You know that I love words, and I want to know the Greek word that they translated into study. What did it mean? What was he saying here? Well, the word for study is a word meaning to earnestly endeavor to accomplish a goal. It means to be ambitious. So let's just, let's just carry this out a little bit. Be ambitious to be quiet. Be ambitious to be quiet. Settle down. As the old song says, slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning. Come on, all you baby boomers, talk to me. So it means to be ambitious. So that our ambition is to be quiet. I'm going to talk about that word quiet in just a minute. But the same word for study, to be ambitious, the same Greek word is used in Luke 14.4 to describe the cessation of activity by the women who were busy about the burial of Christ. Let's look at the verse, and we're going to see uh, the same word used. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and they rested. There's that word. They rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. What were they? They were quiet. They were calm. They allowed their mind and their spirits to rest. Same word. Now, think about success and ambition for a minute. When I say ambition to you, you got to realize that it's not what the Bible means by ambition. Because the Holy Spirit is calling for something here in this passage that is the opposite of the spirit of this world. Totally the opposite. In the world, people are ambitious to make money, achieve business success, uh, climb the social ladder. We urge our children to succeed. But let me show you what the Bible says about all that. In the Bible, however, the only reference to success has to do with the kind of life that results from meditation on the Scriptures. See, what the world calls success is not what God calls success. Knowing the will of God and doing it is what the Bible calls success. See, if you do the will of God and you end up owning nothing material in this world, but you die having done the will of God, God says success. But you can be a billionaire and never submit to God. And you know what God will say to you? You fool. You're a failure. You should have been rich toward God. So what we call success and the Bible calls success are two totally opposite things. Meditate on the scriptures, Joshua 1.8 says. So Paul says, study to be quiet. Make it your ambition to stay out of the limelight. You know, I've noticed that people that really are ready to be promoted don't want to be. 
People that are really ready to be used of God don't feel like they're worthy. You got to kind of kick them up there and make them say, come on, God's called you. And people who just think I'm God's man of faith and power for the hour and, and if you don't pick me, you're missing a lot and they've got this attitude about themselves, they're not ready. There is a reservation on the part of people that are really ready to be used of God that says, you know, if he makes me do it, I'll do it. But remember Moses? Moses said, you, you, you got, got to be k- 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 kidding me. me." <laughs> now that's the revised Wickwire slanted version. But that's what he basically said. He stuttered. He'd been in the wilderness so long he forgot how to talk right. Though when he was in Egypt, he was eloquent. And he fought God about it. So did Gideon. So did Joshua. God had to tell Joshua four times in one chapter, be strong and have a good courage. Get out there. So make it your ambition to seek God. And God will see to it that you're promoted in his time and his way under his anointing. Now, what did he mean to be quiet? Clark's commentary says this, quote, Though in general the church at Thessalonica was pure and exemplary, yet there seemed to have been some idle, tattling people among them who disturbed the peace of others. Persons who, under the pretense of religion, gathered about from house to house, did not work but were burdensome to others and were continually meddling with other people's business making parties and procuring their bread by religious gossiping in other words who's he saying to be quiet people who were relentless gossips always talking about the latest news on the grapevine it's been said the church has a grapevine that Ernest and Julio Gallo would envy if you want to find out something get into the church it travels fast through the church like grease lightning we talk You can talk about not saying the wrong things all day long to churches. They're still going to do it until they grow up and realize I can really damage somebody with my words. So I'm going to learn. I'm going to study. I'm going to make it my ambition to be quiet, to not be a gossip. 98% of problems in the church are communication problems. I would say 80% of those are gossip problems. We hear it, we spread it. We hear it, we tell it. But God says, no, I want you to make it your ambition to be quiet. Don't go from house to house, picking up the phone, calling 10 different people. Did you hear about so-and-so and and -and so-and-so? No, he says, study to not be a gossip, to not be a tale-bearer, to not be a slanderer. Study, make it your ambition in life to learn to be quiet. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good stuff. Praise God. To these people, or to these, the apostle gives those directions, which the whole church of God should enforce wherever such troublesome and dangerous people are found. Because gossips can be very dangerous. How many of you have ever been the victim of a gossip? Well, I see some hands half-masked, like, well, come on. How many of you have ever been gossiped about it? It hurts, doesn't it? All right. And they were continually meddling with other people's business. And let's see, I went backwards. There we go. Now, Paul now shifts from temperamental things to temporal things, meaning temporary things. He says, I want you to mind your own business. (laughs) Let's say that together. Mind your own business. 
Did you know that was in the Bible? Mind your own business. Hey, just getting you right and me getting me right is a full-time job, right? I mean, instead of trying to fix everybody else. Mind your own business and work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, says verse 12, and that you may lack nothing. Now, boy, I wish that I could preach that verse in Washington to the Congress. That one. Matter of fact, I like it so much, I want to read it again. Verses 11 and 12, because here is where our country is making a grave mistake with this whole entitlement culture. Look what the Bible says. Mind your own business. Work with your, whose hands? Own hands. As we commanded you, and as they modeled for them, because Paul was a tent maker. He paid his own way, working with his own hands. That you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Now here what you have in the Bible is the work ethic. It's the work ethic. There it is. And you want to know where the, the, where the Western work ethic came from? It came from the New Testament. The Western work ethic, the good old American work ethic, has its roots in the New Testament teaching. Well, in the whole Bible. Because as we're going to see, the Lord deals here with our work, our walk, and our wealth. All temporal issues. That means here and now in this life. First, God has something to say about our work. Do your own business. He says, work with your own hands. Here you go. The gospel knows nothing of a welfare system that provides for those who are fully able to work. Now, I'm the first one who will help somebody that cannot work. I'll help them till the day they go home to be with Jesus. I will if they cannot work. I love people, and I hate seeing anybody suffer, and particularly if they can't help it. If they can't work, they can't work. And so that's when the church is to step in. But we are not, according to the Bible, to depend on others to take care of us if we are able to work. That's what the Bible says. It's very clear. All right, let me... Idleness is against the Word of God. Scripture says in another place, read this with me out loud, if any man does not work, he should not eat. So the whole thing of food stamps and welfare and the government ought to pay my way and I'm entitled to be taken care of just because I'm so wonderful. That's baloney. That's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know that God created man with a job right at the beginning and he gave him a job before the fall. Let's read it. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work the ground. To do what with the ground? Work the ground and care for it. God gave man a job. I mean unfallen man. I mean man that walked around shining with the glory of God, who walked with God in the cool of the garden. He gave that man a task. He made him a worker. And then after the fall, he just said, well, now it's going to be harder on you because the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow and it's going to be much harder to produce what you need to take care of yourself than it was before the fall. 
But God, God would never amen a welfare system that takes care of fully able-bodied people because it ruins you. It has always been the way of God with humankind to call us to work in order for our needs to be met. A welfare state that provides money to people able but unwilling to work, here's what it does. It destroys families. It destroys ambition. It destroys talent. And it will eventually collapse under its own weight because a nation cannot continually pay for entitlements for people who ought to be taking care of themselves. I'd like to preach this to these Wall Street people who want everything given to them. I don't want to live in socialism. I don't want the government to be so strong that, that the entire nation is dependent on the government and no one is having to work because a social welfare government is taking care of everybody. It destroys creativity. It destroys incentive. It destroys talent. It destroys families. He says, if any man would not work, who can work, then he shouldn't have anything to eat. That's what he said. That's, that's the Christian work ethic, and that's the only work ethic. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Now, it may be that the expectation of the Lord's return caused some of the Thessalonians to become idle. They said, well, if he's about to come back, why work? And I've seen people do that. Oh, I've seen them. When you get these date people, and they say, well, we've been given a date when he's coming back, and since he's coming just around the corner, hey, I'm quitting my job, I'm going to cash in my 401k and live. And the day comes, and he doesn't come back, and they're left looking like fools. But I think this might be one of the reasons that Paul had to write this to the Thessalonians, because they had heard him teach on the return of the Lord in the rapture, and they felt that it was imminent, and so some of them were not working because of it. And this has happened through the centuries. One man, a little bit of history here on date setting for the Lord's return. One man set the date of the Lord's return at A.D. 500. Half a century later, another date was set in anticipation of the new millennium, 1000. 1000 A.D. They, 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 uh, all kinds of preachers came along and said, well, when the new millennium arrives and we're at 1000 A.D., that's when Christ is going to come back. In the new millennium, multitudes of people sold their possessions and they went to Palestine to await A.D. 1000. And they waited and it came and it went. And there they sat in Palestine. Another group set a date for the return of the Lord in 1835. Another one, 1838. Another one, 1866. This is not new to our day. A man named William Miller, the most famous of all American date setters, preached to great crowds equipped with large charts to show how his hypotheses were determined that Christ would return in 1843. Big crowds went to hear this guy. Eloquent convincing, persuasive. When that didn't happen, he moved it up to 1844. He said, oops, I had a little miscalculation. Can anyone say Harold Camping? Whose last date, did you know that he had set another one and it just passed a few days ago? They let him out of wherever they had put him and he set another date. 
And it, and it just passed. And I say, you're still here. And I'm still here. And, and, I, and I'm, I am intentionally making fun because if you transgress the word, you open yourself up for that. Look, Mother Shipton, a self-proclaimed psychic, chose 1881 as the date. Warren G. Harding's brother chose 1923 as the magic date. The Adventists later changed the year to 1996. And on and on the list goes. The bottom line is this. Read it with me. No one knows the day or the hour. You know the season. We're in the season. But you're not going to know that day. And you're sure not going to know the hour. How do we know that? Because Jesus told us that. And if anybody knows, he knows. He said, I don't even know. The Father in heaven has kept that to himself. The Father will turn to the Son and say, go get your bride. And it'll be news to Jesus. That's what he said. The great evangelist D.L. Moody was asked, what would you do today if you knew Jesus Christ was coming tomorrow? Meaning, would you quit working? Would you let everything go and just become idle until he came back? D.L. Moody answered and said, I would plant a tree. I like that. What would I do if he knew he was coming tomorrow? I'd plant a tree. I'd be, I'd be working when he came. So work, says Paul, and provide for your own needs and don't lean on the sweat of others to take care of you. If you're able. Amen. In light of Paul's advice to walk properly towards those who are outside, Moody also gave this great advice. Take care of your character and your reputation will take care of you. I like that. Now we come to the main theme of 1 Thessalonians, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Are you ready to get into this? You want to hear about the rapture of the church? Boy, that's, that's, that's overwhelming. I want to know if you want to hear about the rapture of the church. Because okay. I, I think you might be involved. Okay. The topic is so important. Now, I did not know this until I started studying for this, but this really got me. It's so important in Scripture that it's mentioned 318 times in, 200, in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. New Testament has 260 chapters. In those 260 chapters, the return of the Lord is mentioned 318 times. That comes to an average of one reference every 25 verses. So there's no way you can avoid this topic. It, is, it, it, it infests, it infiltrates the Word of God. With Paul's absence, here's what I think happened. We, remember when we got into this series on 1 Thessalonians, he was driven out of town. He was driven out of town. He left when they were very, very young. He had, he had birthed this church, and these new believers were just, just born again, and he had to go, driven out of town. And with his absence, doubts and questions had begun to arise in the Thessalonians' minds about this great event that he had told them about, especially, they wanted to know, about those who had died since Paul had left. You know, grandma, grandpa, dad, mom, some children, whatever, had died. And they weren't clear on what happened to them and how it all figured in, in the rapture of the church. Had these loved ones missed the rapture? They wanted to know. 
They needed a lengthier explanation from Paul on these things. And what then did Paul say to them? What does happen to those who put their faith in Christ but who die before the Lord returns? First, our feelings are reviewed. He's going to deal with the feelings, the emotions we experience when somebody we know dies. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow, there's the feelings, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. There's a difference between us and those who have no hope. We've all attended funerals. I've been honored to minister and and preach multitudes of funerals in my life. There's nothing more final, I can assure you, than gazing into the casket at the calm face of a corpse. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, looking at somebody in the casket, they sure look beautiful the way they're fixed up and, and all that, but you know what? They're not here. I look at them and they're not here. I look at this body, this shell, and they're not here. But there's something so final and irretrievable and helpless when you look in the face of death. Nothing confronts with the terrible reality of death more strongly than than this. For those outside of Christ, oh, I can't imagine. Death is final. It's cold, it's uncaring, it's menacing, and it is inescapable. And here's what people go through. They, they look at the, the corpse and they go, I'm next. That's going to happen to me one day. And if you don't believe in God, and you don't have any sense of eternity, and all you're thinking is, one day my body is going to die, and that's all that there's going to be, and I'm going to go to who knows what, either absolute nothingness or who knows they may have read superstitious stuff mythological stuff they may have read things that that uh, about purgatory and or, or some other place where they might go when they die and they're not clear about it and there's nothing more to as a matter of fact Paul called death the last enemy and he said in Hebrews that people in the world live their whole lives long in bondage to the fear of death. I personally believe it's one of the reasons that people do drugs and drink alcohol and other forms of escape they involve themselves in because the older you get, the more you feel that shadow drawing closer. I can't deal with it. So I'm going to numb myself. I'm going to check out. I'm going to, I'm going to, get these thoughts out of my head somehow. Paul said, the whole world is in bondage to the fear of death until you meet the one who conquered death. All right? But for the believer, there is a consolation. The promises of God in Christ Jesus. I preach this verse at every funeral. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Neither let it be afraid. Why? Because in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would tell you. But I go right now. I'm blazing the trail. I'm going ahead of you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. What an amazing statement. What an amazing statement. 
That's why you can't just call Jesus a, you know, a neat philosopher, a nice guy, a really good man. No, 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 no. He doesn't let us do that. Somebody that says something like that is either who he said he is or he's stark raving mad. Jesus said, I'm going ahead of you into eternity. I'm going to prepare for you a place, a mansion, an abode, a home, your name on it, made for you. I'm still in the carpentry business. I'm going to make you a house, and you're going to come one day to me. And this isn't all there is. Powerful statement. Paul writes, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Then he describes death as sleep. But watch out now. He doesn't mean soul sleep. The soul does not sleep, but the body does. The soul is made of the same stuff as eternity. It never gets tired, never gets old, never gets ill, and never sleeps. But the body, I can't tell you how many people on in years have said to me, man, I feel 30 on the inside. It's this body that's getting me down. I used to be able to this and that and the other, but I can't, but I don't feel that way on the inside. You know why? Because your soul is eternal. Your soul doesn't age. Just your old body does. And what did John Hagee say a while back? I heard him say it. He said, as you get on in years, if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. Your body is the place where, where, where if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. It's one of the two. Well, I'm not there yet, but hey, you know what? Maybe you are. Can I encourage you tonight? Your body is aging, but your soul is not. It's eternal. And let's move on now. Because the rapture of the church is where the body is going to be resurrected. Now, next, our faith is reviewed. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with him or bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We'll bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The if here is not the if of doubt, where he says, if we believe. He's not using the if there as a doubt if. It actually means since. So let's go back and look at it. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Since we believe. Anybody in here believe that Jesus died and rose again? Oh, yeah. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again is the rendering. So there is no greater fact in all of history. I'm telling you, it outstrips E equals MC squared or any other statement of fact ever made in the annals of the history of mankind. The greatest single fact is that Jesus died and rose again. That's the single greatest fact of history. That is the number one single greatest fact. And it's a fact. It might shock some of you to know that there's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ than for the conquest of Britain by Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. Guarantee you, Jesus' resurrection was not done in a corner, Paul declared to Festus and King Agrippa. The facts of Jesus' resurrection were public knowledge. It's the one thing no unbeliever has ever been able to assail. 
Unbelievers and atheists have gone to try to disprove the resurrection of Christ and have wound up being converted because you cannot disprove the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. It's the greatest single fact in the history of the world. Now, having drawn the parallel between Christ's resurrection, now past, and our resurrection, still pending, Paul points us to them also which sleep in Jesus. And that's what the Thessalonians wanted an answer about. Look what he says in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now he's giving us an order of who will be raptured up into the air first. He said there's going to be an order, a priority. And here it is. It came by personal revelation to Paul. I want you to know that what he's telling us in verse 15 and forward was brand new. No one had ever taught this in the Word of God. And Paul tells us that uh, it came to him as a word from God. He said, this is the Word of the Lord. I've got a revelation. This is the Word of the Lord. We have a guarantee backed by God's own Word. What's the guarantee? The dead in Christ shall rise. He said, and I'm telling you, knowing the, the Bible, this had never been taught. He said, this is new. God gave me a revelation for you. I was in prayer. God gave me as an apostle of the church a revelation. Here's the word of the Lord. The dead in Christ are coming up out of the grave. Those that have died are coming up out of the grave. Who will arise? Look what it says in verse 16. Chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, talking about the rapture of the church. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And read it with me, everybody. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's what he says. There are many different kinds of shouts. I've got to think about this today, this shout of Jesus. We've all heard him. We heard, I was talking to a man, we, Kathy and I had dinner last night with David and Naomi Shibley, and David Shibley was at that game two nights ago. He was in the Lexus seats. I said, how did you get those? He said, somebody gave them to me. I said, ask me what I'm feeling when you tell me that. Because he was right there. I said, David, what was it like in the ninth inning when we were winning and yet you never knew if they were going to maybe hit a couple of home runs or make a couple of runs and, and pass us up? And the, he said, I have never felt anything like it. And when we won, the shout that went up, he said, I've never heard anything like it. Well, he will. Because there is the shout of victory at a sports event. There's a shout of fear. There's a shout of dismay. There is a shout of war. But the shout, the shout. Now watch this now. The shout, the shout of all shouts will come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. On that great day, it'll be the greatest shout to ever split the silence in the history of the world. The shout. Oh, yeah. It will summon 
the saints to glory who are in the grave. What a, what a mighty shout that will be. There will follow that shout a wholesale exodus from the tomb. This mighty shout will ring out across the five continents and the seven seas all at once. Commentator John Phillips writes, quote, Its vibrant echoes will comb the mountain peaks, the Arctic poles, the desert wastes, the ocean caves, the vast prairies, the crowded urban graveyards, and the world's greatest battlefields, and the dead in Christ will rise all over the world all at once. I love this. Martyrs of the faith will rise. Missionary pioneers will rise. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, the rank and file of the church will rise. Both those who were victorious in their lives and those who were weak in their faith will all rise. Up they will come, a countless host, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, men, women, boys, and girls, all washed in the blood of the Lamb, will rise. You say, well, do you really believe that? If I didn't believe that, I'd never preach again, ever. Because the core message of the Christian faith is resurrection. Oh, man, what a day that'll be. Paul next says there will be another voice, the voice of the archangel. And his voice will spell the ruin of the world. The rapture means this, folks that amnesty is over, that God has broken off diplomatic relations with the world that murdered his son. Everything changes. And we're going to talk about that in 2 Thessalonians. What is restraining Antichrist? What is restraining evil? What is restraining the appearance of the man of sin? The church and the Holy Spirit in the church. So don't miss 2 Thessalonians. It's great. But the rapture means that things are going to change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall they ever be with the Lord. The voice of the archangel will herald the sudden outbreak of angelic activity described all throughout the book of Revelation. Remember, Angels are shown sounding the seven trumpets, pouring out the seven vials, and issuing warnings and proclamations in the book of Revelation. At the voice of the archangel, the terrible predictions of the revelation of John immediately commence. Hell on earth. Unbelievable. Indescribable. Don't want to be here. Because you think it's bad now? But there is a restrainer in the world. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit and the church. That is the church that's still walking with God and preaching the Word and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a restrainer. There is a restraint. It's the church that stands up and says, wait a minute, no, that's wrong. And that's right. But see, when the church is gone, all restraint is removed and the man of sin will rise and become known almost immediately. 
but he's being withheld. And, and the mystery of iniquity, a lot of what's going to happen in the tribulation period is being withheld because there's a restrainer in the world right now. But after this event, when the Lord returns, all restraint is gone. Now next, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now notice the word or the words caught up. Shall be caught up together. The words caught up are from the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo. It means literally to snatch away. The same word is used to describe Philip's sudden disappearance after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story in Acts? Look at it says in Acts. Now when they came up out of the water, he baptized this Ethiopian eunuch. They come up out of the water, and what does it say in the Bible? The Spirit of the Lord caught, there's Harpazo, caught Philip away. Oh gosh. Y'all aren't catching this now. Here's this eunuch. He, he, Philip has joined himself to his chariot. He has opened up to him the book of Isaiah. He has shared with him the things about Jesus Christ. The eunuch says, well, what is hindering me from being baptized? Philip said, well, let's go. He takes him in the water. He brings him up and says, you're baptized. And suddenly the man that baptized him, poof, is gone. Pastor Jeff, you don't really, well, of course I believe that. Listen, Jesus walked on water, walked through walls, and then went on the other side of the room and ate fish. He spoke to the winds and the waves and told them to stop. When he was finished bequeathing his final statements to his disciples, he lifted up his hands and was carried off into glory. He created gravity. So this Philip, this evangelist, this spirit-filled man of God who had been in the middle of a red-hot revival and the Lord had said, leave this revival and go join yourself to that chariot. He joined himself to the chariot, led this man to Christ, baptized him, and then <laughs> the eunuch saw him no more and said, wow. Now that's my Bible too. We can only imagine what he went through. And he went on his way rejoicing. But what happened to Philip? Philip was found at Azotus. <laughs> Can you, if I was right here preaching, and I was, and then I was gone. <laughs> and I found myself in New York City. <laughs> yeah, and I hit the ground preaching there. He, he was found. What happened? He was caught up. Harpazo. And he, he kept right on preaching. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. That's what the Bible says. The same word is used to describe a soul winner pulling lost people out of the fire of sin. You need to repent. You need to leave this. You need to get out of this lifestyle. You're destroying yourself. You're going to go to hell come out, be saved. And they listen to you and they come out and they are brought out of the fire, harpazo, delivered out of. Same word. We shall be caught up together with the resurrected saints in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in quicker than a camera flash or a blink. 
You're not going to float up and enjoy the sights on the way up. <laughs> oh, look. Oh, 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 how nice. Always want to, it's not going to be like you're in a jet. One second here, next second there. That's the idea. At the same moment, we shall receive the resurrected body so beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 15 that curves and Elaine Powers can never give you. John says, we shall be like him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Finally, Paul brings us to our present rest. We're going to close with this. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He's saying, your loved ones are okay, the ones who have died. They're asleep. They're okay. Their bodies are asleep, but their souls are with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Their souls are with the Lord. But their bodies are asleep awaiting the resurrection where they'll be given a glorified body. They'll be transformed into a glorified body. Uh, So let's stand together, can we? In the Word of God, good. Next week we're going to finish... Lord willing, 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at the Lord's coming, a sanctifying truth. And then we're headed to 2 Thessalonians. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. This is the hope of the saints, resurrection. Lord, thank you that we are not as those who have no hope. But we have the great and precious promises of God. And we pray, Lord, that You'll help us to anchor our soul on that truth. We thank you to those who have gone ahead of us. Loved ones who have gone to sleep in the Lord, whose bodies sleep and whose souls are with him. Thank you, Lord, that you have said we will see them again in the resurrection. Lord, when we read these things, we see a world that is so lost that has no hope. Lord, we're asking you as a church family, lay your hand on us and help us to reach this lost and dying world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to throw that gospel net out there and bring in a great harvest of souls who will gain that hope, who will know that Jesus, who will be delivered of that dread fear and receive your peace. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Let's sing it, everybody.